Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. And Jim, we usually, uh, I defer to you to uh, drop some, biblio some bibliographic information on the cartoonist that we talk about. But we're speaking to John Romita Jr. Can we agree that he's drawn every single Marvel comic <laughs> character that matters? And a couple of the DC ones that really count. And can we just launch into things? Yes, 100%, Ed. I'm glad to do it that way. We'd be here the whole hour doing the uh, credits otherwise. John Romita Jr. Now I feel really old. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I feel very... Well, I started when I was two, so I don't feel that old. There you go. It's, it's funny you say that, man, because I think you might be the first uh, comic drawer I've, I've ever uh, laid eyes on because of the hunk of the month. Uh, oh, bullpen uh, photograph, man. That may be the first comic drawer I ever did listened to. Did you, do you know the story about that? Cartoonist Kayfabe exists because you, the viewer, have been goodly enough to support our comic book projects that Jimmy and I have created over the, the years. Jim has a new one coming out March 16th. 316 says you got to go out and get a Hulk grand design. What Jim has done it's taken uh, 40, 50 years worth of Incredible Hulk comics, more than 500 issues of material. Multiply that by 22, and you got the amount of pages that Jimmy had to read in order to distill it down into its purest form. Two 40-page comics, the first one being Hulk Monster. The following month, Hulk Madness comes out. 40-page comics apiece, taking all of that material, distilling it down into its purest form, and giving you the greatest Hulk romp you are ever going to read. We've supplied Jimmy with a bunch of variant covers. Here's the Eddie P variant that is sort of by way of the Todd McFarlane Herb Trimpey joint. Peach Momoko, the cottage industry and friend of cartoonist Kayfabe herself has provided Jimmy a fantastic uh, Hulk Grand Design cover. Marcos Martin gives you that quintessential transformation sequence that we all like to see and Hulk Grand Design. Jimmy, how many uh, transformations happen in uh, these 40-page comics? <laughs> Man, so many. And how many in the 500 issues? <laughs> that is, that is, the whole comic could have been transformations. Probably at least 500, right? <laughs> you got to have those moments. Anything you want to say real quick, Jimmy? Perfect for new readers. Uh, First-time readers are welcome to this comic. Like, I pride myself on readability in my comics. So if you've never read a Hulk comic, but you love the Hulk, this is the book to start with. And long-time readers should love this book because it is my favorite moments from the Hulk, whether those are covers, uh, story moments, characters, artists, whatever it is, like, it's it's the Hulk. You know, I tried to pull the greatest parts of the Hulk from 500 issues worth of uh, sample. And... Um, Hopefully I've done it. So uh, good for first time or long time readers. You guys showed up in a big way in 2021 for uh, my Red Room comics. Uh, I expect you to do the same and more for Jimmy because this is a this is a known quantity, man. We know the Hulk. You want to see what Jimmy does with the Hulk. Uh, Red Room, the anti-social network, was the first season of Red Room comics that came out in 2021. Uh, we are hustling the uh, trade paperback of that series of comics. Uh, about 70 pages of addition, additional material in the trade paperback to go along with uh, supplement the issues worth of comics that you might have read before. You're getting the first draft of Red Room that was done in a very quick and dirty fashion. This is kind of like how I, how I uh, brain dump whenever I'm trying to come up with like my next round of comics. This was very successful in the X-Men Grand Design Omnibus and I had to include this kind of thing. Uh, maybe every comic I make from now on will we'll have this this kind of material included in the back. Director's commentary tracks, sketches, all kinds of stuff is in there. And uh, Trigger Warnings is the next round of Red Room Comics. going to start coming out in March 9th, man. March is Cartoonist Kayfabe Month at the comic shop, so pre-order these comics. This is the standard cover for Red Room issue number one of Trigger Warnings due to some ransomware. Uh, this might be the lowest uh, issue one on record. For, uh, for the Red Room comics because the stores were not able to get all their orders in. I'd like to see it go into second printings uh, really, really quick. Within one week would be nice. Peach Momoko, the aforementioned cottage industry of comic book cover artwork, provided her piece for uh, Red Room. Jim Rugg, man, King Kayfaber, by way of Robert Crumb's Zack Comics number zero in true form. That is sick as fuck. And this is the Eddie P retail incentive variant kind of playing around with standard book cover. Uh, aesthetic. Get these comics at your local comic shop. Support our bibliographies and we're going to be able to continue bringing cartoonist kayfabe to you now that we're done paying the bills. Back to the video. 
Please tell us. It was a it was a practical joke by Jim Shooter uh, on me. The uh, there was something I forgot exactly what triggered it. It was we went to a bar after a softball game, and I I, I did something that embarrassed him. So he told me that all three of the young artists at that time, me, Bob Layton, and Bill Sinkevich, um, were going to do a photo shoot because of our young single status. And he get the guy, got the guy to take a photograph of me, and the guy said, look this way, look this way, and it's going to be the three guys will be hunks of the month, and then three guys running, and then there will be a subsequent set of guys. 80, 83, whatever it was, I was the only one, and that, that photograph will live in infamy. He got me. He got me good. I never, I never paid him back. I may, I'll just send some very old hooker to his apartment when I get a chance. <laughs> Tell us but about it was Jim. a good. It was a good laugh. Good laugh. Tell us about Jim Shooter. Was I can only go by first. Go by the personal part with Jim and me. And I don't remember if he was the editor when I uh, got on contract or not. That was seventy-seven, and I was three at the time. Uh, the uh, the thing about Jim Shooter was he helped me with storytelling without actually telling me how, but he gave me very cogent words, much to say you have to establish and reestablish during an issue. In other words, you have to make sure the, right, the reader knows where they are without going more than two pages. And it stuck with me because at the time, all of us young guys were flailing around with storytelling. We, we knew what we wanted to do, but we didn't know how to get there. And he was implicit and, and said you have to establish, reestablish. I don't care how many panels are on a page. And if you remember, I, I don't know if you remember back then, but there were a lot of nine, ten panel pages, a lot of small panels. So when the, uh, the, uh, the pinup phase of the industry came about, there was a, there was a, a need to establish and reestablish. So I'll always tell Jim, always say that Jim Shooter helped me uh, in directing myself towards telling stories properly in that I knew I had to make sure everybody knew where they were. So that was a great bit of advice. And he was um, he was tough on me in that he wanted me to, to work hard. And he, he, he wasn't nasty in any way. We were good friends. He hit a softball, a country mile. Uh, I did too, but he didn't like having a small guy hit one that far. So it bothered him. But he and I were good friends. And he was a good editor-in-chief in that he was strict and strong and knew what he wanted. So I have nothing bad to say. And uh, even with the... the, the uh, that practical joke i still think he's a good guy john you uh w one of the things i came across is that you worked at marvel for almost 10 years before you were doing full pencils and i don't know if that was something that jim shooter did but i wondered if you could talk about that a little bit because in my mind that's the storyteller part and it's it's something i think yeah. of when i think of your work so was that unusual that a that a new guy would be doing i guess breakdowns and you know how, how did that come about <laughs> that was uh, a backhanded insult for lack of a better term, because I was so young and raw, I was told. Uh, but they liked how I drew, and yet they didn't want full pencils because I was working with inkers who were Finnish inkers. Now, I, I I don't know if it was exactly 10 years, but it was a long time before I was able to work on Daredevil and work on Finnish pencils. However, I had done a lot of covers. I had done a lot of pinups. I did work for the British department. Uh, but there was... Um, there was this conversation about doing Iron Man with these two great talents, Michelini and, and Leighton. And uh, Leighton was sad that he couldn't pencil and ink it all by himself, so uh, he did the finishes. And it was insisted upon for many, many years. And you're, you're right, storytelling became my part of it in that I had to focus on that because my breakdowns, while they weren't uh, uh, loose, were not tight, and Bob... Um, insisted on me giving a little bit of shading here and there to let him know what I was thinking, and then he would take it in his own direction. And it followed through with a couple of subsequent stories, I think, uh, uh, titles. I think when I did Spider-Man, it was, I don't remember if it was loose or not, but I remember doing work with the inker, again, my tight breakdowns, which was storytelling. When Daredevil came around, because I was taken off the X-Men, uh, I remember Chris Claremont not being happy about me following Paul Smith. He was a huge Paul Smith fan. And it subsequently happened the same way. They wanted me to do breakdowns. Chris didn't really care for my style. Now, he and I are good friends again. He and, he and I worked together, and he became a, a fan. But uh, there was the ink, the ink artist that would finish for me, and I was telling stories. Now, Chris Claremont's plots were tomes. They were very explicit, especially with a young artist like myself. 
but we got along famously. The book would have sold if I had uh, not done decent work. The book was very popular. Chris is a brilliant writer. So I learned storytelling through all of those four. And then when I was asked to get off the X-Men for a side project and couldn't get back on it, I was ready to roll and ready to leave, go back to advertising. I'll go into advertising because I was fed up with the industry. I, I say fed up because I was getting a lot of shit, excuse the expression, for being John Romita's son. Uh, and people would come up to me and look me in the face and say, you're, you're only here because of your father. And I'd say, Ma, come on, how about a little bit of support? <laughs> but the truth was I got treated pretty poorly as a young guy, and I had no allegiance <clears throat> to the industry. It was more or less to Marvel because it was in my heart. And when I couldn't get back on the X-Men, I was pissed and I wanted to go. And Ralph Macchio, Macchio came up to me and said, don't leave. Try working on, uh, on Daredevil. See what you think. We'll let you do whatever you want. You can tell the stories. You can plot. You can do the, your finished pencils. I had done so many pinups, British pinups for, for, uh, of Daredevil, um, which really became my favorite character to draw. So when he said, listen, you do whatever you want. You can work with this great editor, assistant editor. And Asenti at the time was the assistant editor on Daredevil. And she and I became good friends that time she even played softball uh so she and i became good friends and then she was familiar with my work and we worked together on daredevil and it it worked beautifully and i loved every second of it and i was lucky enough to work with a guy named al williamson and he insisted that my my pencils were so easy that he didn't he could do it in his sleep and of course his work in his sleep is better than anybody else awake but that experience of going onto Daredevil kept me from leaving the industry or from Marvel at least. And uh, I'm very happy the way things worked out because Daredevil uh, allowed me to, to throw storytelling, uh, excuse me, plotting uh, input into my job as well as the storytelling. And it really did give me a massage and an exercise of the storytelling chops. Um, at that point, things started to blossom and I was bringing a character up instead of the title itself giving me credence, if you know what I mean. Uh, Spider-Man uh, Spider and X-Men were top-selling books when I got on them. So people said I was just cruising. But Daredevil was less so, and it became a, a higher-selling title because of Anne and myself. And things started to blossom, and then Frank Miller wanted to work on a, a graphic novel with me and Man Without Fear. And uh, to this day, Man Without Fear, I think, is the best job I've ever done from top to bottom. I remember encountering that for the first time in a comic scene magazine, they were doing like, I think it was a Miller profile when he was coming back into comics, but they showed some of those Man Without Fear pages in pencil form. And it was just like, I wanted to cry looking at them. They were like the most beautiful comics pages I'd ever seen. And it was your pencils that they were reproducing. You know, it may have been, I don't know, early in the in the book's development or something that they only had the pencils. Right. But I just remember right. looking at them and it was that glimpse behind the curtain and it was <clears> stunning. <throat> yeah, it looks like you, you uh, like a real artist, man. You like, you draw with like the side of the pencil all like this i do i break down i break i rough out the pages with the side of the pencil and uh and i don't remember what caused that to happen but i rough out and then i do the tightening afterwards the uh but i do it with a lighter lead so that when i do the finished pencil work it's a darker lead and there's less erasing to do with the the structure the funny part about that uh assignment was i was so uh intent on shutting everybody the hell up that I, I did extra hard work on that because Daredevil did well, but the, the, I hate to say that I was conscious of everybody's opinions, but everybody's opinions were put in my face every time there was a beer in somebody's gullet. And I, I had to keep my hands up. My, my father said, keep your hands in your pocket, your mouth shut and do your job. And I've said it before. If I took a swing at everybody that deserved it back then, <laughs> I'd still be in jail. I swear to God. But if that job made me want to prove everybody wrong and shut everybody up. I don't know if that happened then, but Man Without Fear made a big deal because I started getting compliments from the very assholes that told me I was no good. Spite is a big motivator in... in uh, Damn right it is. Yeah. In, co in comic artwork. Uh, in, Maybe in, in anything. All I know in is anything. comic in life. Yeah. All I know is... No, in anything creative. Anything creative when you're questioned. And, you, and my wife tells me, my wife Kathy says... You have to have a thicker skin because even to this point, when somebody says something non-constructive but obnoxious, it bothers me. She says, are you kidding me? You've been doing this long enough. And my father said, have a thick skin. You have to. Jack Kirby, John Buscema gave me advice, and they said, don't listen to anybody. 
do what first comes out. In other words, throw your effing eraser away and don't listen to anybody, any of their critics. Do what you think is the best and the first thing that comes out will do you right. My father said it. And now here I am all these years later. My wife says, have a thick skin, shut up and don't worry about it. I, it, you can't not let it bother you when somebody says something obnoxious. Now, constructive, I love it, and I'll pay that person a compliment. Uh, I would do Spider-Man with skinny ankles, I was told. And I laughed, and I went back and looked. The ankles were too skinny, so I fixed it. It's fantastic. I never got a chance to thank that person personally. You know, But you have to have a thick skin. I uh, there was an interview I remember uh, a while ago, and I don't know exactly know how to ask this this question, but we'll, we'll figure it out, man. We'll have a conversation. So it was uh, the time you were doing Spider Man and Thor, and at the same time, so two monthly books. Imagine that these days, right, Jimmy? And uh, I remember you mentioning that the toughest part it wasn't the the the, the page count; it was it was shifting your brain from two different sets of reference. Now. This is before Google image search and things like this. And I imagine like, first off, did you have a big reference file that you were clipping and pasting? Because that's something that I would always notice in your work, man, especially the urban setting, like very well referenced, filtered through your own style, but very, very well referenced and uh, believable looking everything. Uh, did you inherit your dad's clip file? Did you have to spend a lot of time yourself creating your own reference library? And then when the computer comes into effect and there's Google image search, all that work that went into getting all that reference, do you still have that library? Did you throw it away? <laughs> I can't imagine you could throw something like that away after building it for That's 25, it. 30 years. Uh, t tell us about Excellent. that part of the job. Excellent conversation piece. Uh, yes to everything in the above. Uh, the the reference needed to work on a character like Spider-Man or Daredevil, which is a, in the urban setting, the city setting, uh, the, it was necessary. And I, the days of going to a library and using a, a, a mimeograph machine, I hate to say how old I am, but that's the truth. Now, taking apart newspapers, magazines, in anticipation of using them, not so much looking for stuff, or going out with a camera and taking a photograph and then taking it to the local pharmacy and get it, getting it developed. All of that was part and parcel to the industry. The stories about Frank Miller going up on his roof and taking pictures of the, the water tanks, it's notorious. So yes, I did get, I, I spent a lot of time getting reference on that city setting. Now, of course I lived in the city itself. I lived in Queens, we were, I was born in Brooklyn, raised in Queens. So a lot of the setting was inherent, you, you, you see, uh, you know, you, you have a setting of Daredevil or Spider-Man and you know you had a crowded street with a lot of parked cars and a lot of buildings up alongside with the windows open and radios blasting and people all over the streets. It was inherent. You could not help it. The great thing about it was it was a natural setting to me. So as you alluded to, when working on on Thor, the reference I would tear apart and put up on my desk was Jack Kirby's Thor. And uh, because there's no setting to get reference on in your mind about Thor other than memories. And I remember putting up, I would wallpaper my wall with, and I told Dan Jurgens this. I said, this is Kirby. We got to use this. He said, yeah, but don't get too far to Kirby. You use yourself. And it ended up without me even making a concerted effort. It came out of me. It wasn't looking like Kirby, but it had the power of Kirby, which is what we needed. So the flip back and forth from 217th Lane in Queens Village to Asgard was a distinction and it was tough. But everything you mentioned about the reference, the reference, I had a pile of reference my own dwarfed by the pile that my father let me have. Good point. Black and white, I still have some black and white photographs, stuff from when he was in, uh, in the service. I've got photographs coming out of my ears that I will not give up out of melancholy. It's my father's stuff. Then I pile up my stack of stuff and then when Google search became the rave, it, I didn't throw stuff out. I'm too lazy to throw it out. There's a pile of shit over here that I swear it's the size of Montana. And I can't go through it. Even when I know I got that image from Google search six years ago, I can't go through it. I'm too lazy to go through the stack. So I reprint it again. I've got the same image of, of uh, the Empire State Building probably 50 times. But everything you said is correct. And uh, uh, the irony is that going back and forth between Spider-Man and, uh, excuse me, was it Daredevil and, and Thor? Daredevil and Thor was, uh, uh, it was 
intense and you had to do an adju- make an adjustment. And I don't know how I didn't become an alcoholic. So you, uh, it's important to, to print up the, the imagery and have it right next to the board. You don't like look at your phone yeah. or whatever. Now the, the phone, I only do the phone when I'm, uh, sitting at my desk and something real quick, blah, 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 uh, a shot of, uh, 42nd street and eighth Avenue, boom, the corner. And I'll hit that printed up on my, on my, my printer right here. And then I stick it to the desk. I have a gigantic drafting table. It's oh, bigger man. than my first apartment. That's awesome. And, and I, right now, actually, if, I don't know if you can tell, but I have a whole bunch of photographs up there across the top, right underneath all the photographs of my wife and my son, but all of the photographs of what I'm working on. And one of the scenes is because a tombstone in uh, Spider-Man uh, in Harlem. So I needed some reference on some buildings, some gritty buildings in Harlem. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. Boom, boom, boom on the phone or on the laptop, print it out. And I just plaster it right in front of me. So it's right, it's right above my drawing line of vision is the image of that building. That's a personal quirk. I'm sure other guys do different things. But yes, I plaster the whole area with that reference. And if I had an assistant, they would put it into a file and label it and I wouldn't have to do it again. But eh. Screw it. I'll just print it out again. I got, I got paper and I got cartridges. Yeah, you can expense that stuff. That's funny you mentioned an <laughs> assistant. I, I was going to ask if you ever worked with an assistant because it does seem like two books a month. Uh, if you could have somebody doing some busy work, it might might help that quite a that bit. That would have probably helped. However, I wasn't conscious of that uh, at that time for, for the reference part. It didn't occur to me. I was younger and and uh, not humble as much as I was. There's no way I can act that way and say I need an assistant. I felt like it was a weakness. And yet here I am still asking for an assistant. I don't ask literally, but in my head, it would probably help. Now, I've got a brilliant wife who's smarter than me and better looking than me and stronger than me. And she helps out with everything I need. It's fantastic. John, do you ever look at comics? And I say that because I just from the sense of uh, interviews and, and stuff that I've seen you talk about, uh, it seems like you can, you can like sort of punch out and, and live, live a full life outside of comics after drawing the page. Like, uh, I don't, I don't get the impression from interviews. I read that you're, you know, s- studying like old Hugo Pratt comics or anything like that, but uh, dispel that for me. If that's the case. I always look at, uh, my father's work, Jack Kirby, John Buscema. I look at illustrators or books, the Gibsons, the Wyeths. Uh, I, I always look at it because I, it, every once in a while, I get very proud of myself with what I'm doing. Every once in a while. Uh, I have a couple of glasses of wine too many, and I'm very proud of myself. And then I just go back to my office, open up a couple of books, and I'm back to being this small again. It, it It's a great... Uh, foot grasp on the ground when you look at some of the brilliant artists that have been before you and realize that you're not that good or everything you've done is derivative. It, uh, my father told me there's always somebody bigger, bigger, better, stronger, smarter, and a better artist than you. Once you deal with that, you'll always strive to get better. Uh, so I, I always look at the great illustrators and I have books of illustrators. I have a whole closet full of books and I have to look at it. It gives me ideas. It gives me some inspiration. And then we go down to the Bissemas and the, and the Ramitas and the Kirby's. And here we are in a smaller, it's a subset of the art business. <laughs> and I'm still this big. And then the guys I came into the industry with, the, the, the Frank Millers, the Jim Lees, uh, uh, the Kubert boys. Uh, uh, there's so many great contemporary artists that you can't get full of yourself. You have to keep your feet on the ground and it always gives you room for improvement, and I got plenty of room for improvement. I'll be 85, and maybe I'll be satisfied with what I'm doing. After you uh, draw a page, uh, is it? Can I imagine you kicking back and in, in reading a comic, or no? I haven't read a comic in a very long time. I look at the art, and I know the story going in, and uh, uh, which means I'll do a quick perusal of the story, uh, reading something from the beginning. It's, I haven't read a full book in a very long, long time. Uh, although I will look at dialogue when I know I'm going to work with a certain writer. When I found out I was going to work with Zeb Wells, when I looked at, I had his stuff, looked at the dialogue. But the art is important to me, and the storytelling is important to me. And occasionally, I will, under my breath, say, I can do that better, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but the art, the art is intrinsic 
to my progression. And there's so many guys better than me as draftsmen. But I think when I say I can do this better is I'm, I feel I'm stronger in storytelling than, than as many people as there are in a business only because I needed that to make my art look better. My art's a five on the scale of 10. My storytelling is higher up and it drags the quality of the art up. And I'm very proud of that. Very, very proud of that. What do you attribute your storytelling uh, ability to? I, I, we talked to Howard Chaikin, and, and he was talking about how you guys would do seminars at Marvel with young artists for a while. So, you yes. know, obviously, I think everybody agrees your storytelling is exceptional. Is there something you point at as to, like, how you've gotten good at the storytelling thing, something we could learn from, something you tell those young Marvel uh, upcoming artists? Uh, be deliberate and act as if the reader doesn't know where they are, just like Jim Shooter said. Now, un interestingly, it was all of those rainy nights in Queens when there was no cable and there was only a couple of channels to watch and there's nothing to do on a, su on a summer day. My father would say, sit down, I want you to watch this movie. It's called On the Waterfront or 12 Angry Men or Inherit the Wind. These brilliant black and white films that were, uh, they, 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 they were based on storytelling in that there was nothing flashy about the special effects and when he would say look at this watch this scene and so on and while he's working he would say remember we were watching this movie this is the kind of thing i need you to pay attention to because i would already told him i wanted to be a cartoonist that kind of thing it was the conversations with him following what he did hearing this, the conversations he would have with stan lee where he would walk into the office with a pad and stan would describe the story to my father uh, verbally. It wasn't a plot. It was a verbal discussion. My father would write down and then draw a whole, a whole issue and Stan would write the dialogue according to my father's artwork. So his point was you need to be deliberate in your storytelling. Make sure that they, the, the reader knows where they are from page to page. Even if you do some fancy tap dancing, intermittent cuts between the scene, make sure you know where you are when you cut back to it. It's cinema. It's cinema. Uh, I, I'm a cinephile. I pay attention to films so much. And uh, the the pullback, those two words were such a vital bit of, of, of advice from my father. And he said, don't do everything close up. Don't try and cheat. Pull back and show where you are. If in the middle of a conversation, you're up in a building in Queens, pull back and show the, the window and then show the street. And he gave me the perfect example. There's a movie called The Big Country with Charlton Heston and Gregory Peck. And uh, without going into the story, Gregory Peck is a, a, uh, a sailor, a big time sailor and played on the ocean all of his life. Charlton Heston is a country boy and a, and a cowboy and laughed at the sailor. And the sailor says, I, I've worked in the largest playground in the history of mankind. This is nothing to me. They get into a fight because they don't like each other. And it's instead of the close up, they pull back into this gigantic horizon of countryside and the, and the sounds of the punches are muffled and you can hear them grunting and groaning and beating the snot out of each other and then you pull back in. That's stuck with me. Oh my God, this is brilliant. So what every once, and I just did a scene like this in, in uh, Spider-Man where I pulled back, he's running a, running a gauntlet to get out of a building and I pulled back to show a scene and I had so much fun with it because it's a silhouette, but it's pulled back and you can see the hallway and you can see the door. That stuck with me, that moment of pulling back and establishing number one and varying the imagery number two, because everything can get repetitive. We can all show somebody beating the snot out of another superhero and so on, but to vary the imagery to the point where it's interesting and fun, and it also serves a purpose because you can show where they are and something can come into the scene a page or two later that you showed in the previous panel. Uh, it's cinema. It's showing deliberate uh, sequential story without um, jerking off with the big pinup shots that we can very easily do. And uh, whether it was because of my father, Jim Shooter, the, 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 uh, the films, all of that or not, I developed it into what I wanted to do, and I got a grasp of it. You mentioned that The Man Without Fear. If you look at that graphic novel in the back, they showed the script with all my little notes on it. People used to tell me, do your 
uh, thumbnails before you pencil a page. And what they literally meant was draw the little panels the way you wanted to, and then you draw it on a larger sheet. And I thought that was repetitive. And I started writing notes to myself about those panels. I would say start off uh, six panels. Um, this is a small panel. This is a close-up. This is this. And it's a shot of Daredevil, and then there's a shot of this, and then there's a big reveal shot of Daredevil slapping somebody. And it became my, my uh, way of my formula. And it stuck with me. I'm still doing it, and I'm loving every second of it because I know exactly what I want to do. And I still can do the two books a month, but I wouldn't be able to enjoy the, the intricacy of the art. And my last belabored point, because I had a cup of coffee before you guys came on, that desire to shut people up was just huge when I moved back to Marvel from D.C. Got a lot of negative reaction. Ah, stay over there. You suck. And again, I said, Mom, please be nice to me. You know, say the nice <laughs> things. Uh, and I needed to show everybody that I still got it. And it, it, it's a great motivator. And it's still with me. And when the first issue of Spider-Man hits, however long ago, it, how long from now it is, um, I want it to be a little bit of a shove up people's mouths and shut them up. I love. I was going to say shove up their ass, but I, I apologize. You could say that, man. Like this is, you know, this is a classy affair, but we can uh, have have profanities uh, as much as much as we like, man. I just need to. I need to prove myself again, even at this age. I uh, I would like to get a little bit on the record about quote unquote deadline style. Uh, what you mean by that? Uh, I have some ideas of what you mean by that, uh, and and how that works uh, with your process uh, specifically. Do you do one page at a time? You sort of you let us know that you don't necessarily thumbnail everything out. Do you lay everything out uh, on the big boards at once and then go in and use the rest of the month? Like how explain deadline style. Oh, and I think we're going to get some visual aids, Jimmy. <laughs> I think the, we're uh, in for a treat. The deadline style was a colloquialism for uh, whatever the hell comes out on time. Because when I was younger, I wasn't conscious of a style. I would just draw and try to get done as quickly as possible. And then my, my improvement happened the more I worked, uh, which happens to anybody. You're going to get good at something if you do it 12 hours a day for, for you know, 18 hours, 18, well, 20 hours a day, <laughs> it seems like, for 10 days a week. You have to get better. And I was working to get all deadlines, make the deadlines, because I wanted to make sure I didn't get anybody second-guessing their decisions. Uh, and I nicknamed my style deadline style because I wasn't conscious of anything other than what I was drawing to get the de meet the deadline. Uh, the art came along. The storytelling was there. I knew what I was doing. The notes, I had my formula. It was all down. So if somebody says, what, what, how would you consider your style? And I said, it just whatever comes out on time, it's a deadline style. And it stuck. I work on a page. I rough out a page. After doing the notes in the script, all right, let's play. Very exciting, Jim. All right, give me a second. Here is the, the script I got from Zeb Wells. In, in the borders are all my notes for what he's written. He doesn't write a lot per se. It's, a, it's about a 15-page script slash plot because he says, I know what you can do. You don't need me to do it for you, but I'll give you my dialogue for a scene. You can – that kind of thing. It's a great uh, uh, combination. I write the notes, and then I start roughing out pages, and this is how it comes out. I rough the pages out. I'll rough out – I did seven pages of roughs yesterday. And uh, I'm thinking about finishing the, the rest of the issue in rough form and then starting to tighten up pages because we're on a good schedule. Uh, and I'm having a great run of the roughing, which is the storytelling uh, format. And normally I would do a, a two or three pages of roughs and then start tightening up and hand in two or three pages every couple of days, that kind of thing. I'm in the mood to do roughs. I, the weather sucks outside, so I'm in the mood to rough everything out. When it sun shines, I do better tight work. The formula is, uh, if you're on a roll, stick with it. If I was on a roll of tightening, I would tighten out all seven pages uh, consecutively. But I like to rough, and when I'm in that great storytelling mindset, and Deb's uh, got this great uh, um, set of scenes of Spider-Man trying to escape a building. Wonderful stuff, but he's leaving it to me, and I'm having a blast. Um, old, you know, an old... Uh, beat up tenement and he's trying to go run the gauntlet through a bunch of bad guys. I love this kind of stuff. And he says, I'll give some suggestions about what I'd like. And here's some dialogue with it. Knock yourself out. 
and it's great. And it's a great combination of, of the two of us working together. So I'll rough and I'll tighten and it's, that's it. It's like the gas and brake pedal when you're driving. How much input goes into who you work with? Uh, in the case of Zeb, is it something that, that that sort of arrives as a package of like, you know, do you want to take on Spider-Man and here's the writer? Or are you looking at at writers that you want to work with? Um, same with inkers. How, how much of that is your input? If I were a bitch and I was just a complete diva, I would throw my feet down and demand somebody. But I can't do that. Never, never could. There's so many great writers, so many great ink artists. I was told in, in, in early on that Scott Hanna and I were going to work on Spider-Man together. Scott is uh, is brilliant. He's an artist on top of being an ink artist. Same with Klaus Janssen. I worked with and Danny Mickey, brilliant artists first, and then became ink artists. Uh, that I get a chance to work with Scott again. We have a long history in Spider-Man. He knows what I do. I know what he does. He says, I can fix something you make a mistake on and without even asking you that kind of thing. And those happen all the time. And when I was told that Zeb was the writer, I wasn't, I hadn't read any of his stuff, went out and started reading some of his stuff. You asked about it. Uh, and I looked, I would read a couple of pages and then I would look at the story and, and I would grasp what he was doing. When I found out and I got a chance to speak to him, it was great. The, I would never ever throw any kind of um, any weight around and demand anybody. Uh, they know who who I like, ink artists wise and writers wise. I've worked with some of the best writers in the industry. Thank God I've been lucky. But when they told me that it was going to be Zeb at the get go, along not too far away from when they told me it was going to be Klaus, uh, excuse me, uh, Scott and me, I knew that it was going to be a great combination because I had been told by more than a few people Zeb Wells is a brilliant uh, uh, writer in the industry right now. I said, that's fantastic. And this is where we are. And it's a lot of fun. There's four issues done. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. And Zeb is a fan. I'm a fan of Zeb. Scott and I get along great. The, the editor is great. Uh, uh, Nick Lowe is a brilliant editor. Uh, every once in a while, he'll call me and say, ah, this face doesn't look right. Do this. Hey, all right. I got to do it. He's the boss. He's, you know, he signs the checks. So I have input from everybody. Uh, and it's a great combination of, of everything. And I'm really happy to work on it. The process stays with me over the years. And I could still do two books a month. I just don't know if I would be able to put in the detail and the work that I'm putting into this and to the uh, the, 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 the whole six issues I'm going to do right now. We'll see. The, the, the Fantastic Four thing I did was the, the outset when I first got in back to Marvel. I put more work into that than I had in a, in a long time on a title. It was 60 pages. It wasn't just a title. It was a special project. A little bit of wanting to shut people up, a little bit of proving I could still I still have it. And I didn't want to rush it. I wanted to make sure it showed that I had uh, the ability to play with all the line work and all the shading and so on. Had a great time with it. And it's following along. Now, if they say do a second title, which... Uh, you didn't hear me say this. There's a possibility of doing another title, or not a monthly one. Uh, I jump at the chance. You know, I'll just put myself in hock and go out and buy a stupid car or something like that, and put myself in debt and have to work hard. <laughs> I exaggerate to clarify. We'll never buy another car. John, I, let's talk about let's talk about inkers. You know, you mentioned a couple, so I, I think a fun uh, sort of game to play would be uh, to to maybe name some inkers and. You give us sort of off the top of your head what, what you think they brought to the table, their strengths, like uh, what, the, what the relationship was like. And let's start off with Dan okay. Green. Dan and I started off early on in our careers, and we got along famously. And interestingly enough, his style uh, was derivative of, of a couple of older artists before him uh, that did very fine line work, uh, the names of which I could – Dan Atkins and a couple other guys – uh, and it worked well with uh, what I was told was my gritty style. Uh, the stuff came out beautifully. We did the, the Iron Man stuff, correct? It was an Iron Man? Yeah. X-Men, a uh, uh, couple rounds of X-Men. X-Men, yes. And, and he and I got along famously. And is another great artist that did repair work, if you'll excuse the expression. Uh, so I enjoyed him. And, and I had no problem with anything he did, his stuff was beautiful. We, yeah, it was all the X-Men. You're right, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm interposing my ink artists. 
but we went to uh, to France because of the Magneto on trial issue, and people were complimenting Dan as an artist as, as well as me, which shows you that he's that good an artist. It's great. He was also on the Cable miniseries, which, uh, yes. g- given given our age, was a really uh, important book, an interesting book um, <laughs> from a tumultuous time in Marvel history. Do you have any memories right. of that that Cable miniseries, like how that came to be, what, what that experience was like? I, simple. I was asked to do it, and it was a great character, and I said, yes, I'll do it. And then when he told me Dan was going to work on it, I said, nope, this is, this is easy. I'm going to work with him. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant artwork by Dan. And again, the specifics of his line work compared to uh, other ink artists, several artists would study under a certain... Uh, uh, experienced ink artist or artist and learn from that. Uh, there was a, a, a whole string of ink artists that had very fine line work uh, and a lot of feathering and uh, thin feathering, not heavy duty feathering uh, of blacks. And it was a style that was kind of, uh, Joe, Joe Rubenstein had a similar style, uh, line work, beautiful line work. At that time, it's, it was the style that was popular and very happy to, to work on it that way. But Dan and I got along great, and uh, never a complaint. He would he would just fix things whenever I fucked up. It was great. I had that great luck with ink artists who would always fix my f ups. Look at this. I already said fuck up once, and I'm trying to change it. <laughs> name a name, Jimmy. Uh, Klaus Jansen. He is the counter to the fine line work. Uh, is a man with guts in the ink, heavy heavy underline uh, to give things weight. Uh, he, he would broaden the, the, the line of under a, a figure to give it that weight. Uh, and um, our gritty styles meshed perfectly. I, I was told that my stuff is more street than it is Asgard, which is interesting. We talked about it a few minutes ago. Klaus and I worked so well on Daredevil and, and, uh, and Wolverine and, and everything we worked on because we have a variance in styles. And I think that is, uh, that's the, 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 <laughs> That's the spice of life. Variety is the spice of life. And he and I work together all the time and love every minute of it. And consequently, when a certain project comes up or a cover comes up, they will say, this is suited for Klaus. You want me to send it to Klaus? Of course, send it to Klaus. Uh, another great, great artist, a brilliant artist first before he became an ink artist. Same as Dan Green, same as Scott Hanna, same as uh, Danny Mickey. And then, of course... When you go back to the guy that I was lucky to work with on Daredevil, Zal Williamson, who is the line man of all time, a lot of guys studied under him, so to speak. I, I've been blessed with uh, working with brilliant, brilliant ink artists. Yeah, I tend to think of Al, Al Williamson and Klaus Jansen as like uh, possibly the greatest ink, inkers of all time. And, you know, looking forward to talking to you, I thought you could set the record straight and tell us which of those guys is, <laughs> is the better inker. Oh, Sophie's don't do choice. That. <laughs> uh, don't, don't do that to me. They had distinct styles. Uh, but Klaus took his style in a different direction. He studied under guys like Al Williamson, probably studied under Al Williamson. But Klaus made it his style. And uh, it's distinctive, and I love do, doing it with him. He and I worked so well on some of the projects. And he worked on Spider-Man, which is a line, a line work uh, specific character but because of the grittiness of the back alleys and that stuff punisher wolverine spider-man daredevil he and i just meshed nicely because of the distinction in the styles again variety yeah it's one of the reasons i was asking about you know how much input you have on these teams because the scott hannah looks so good on spider-man and it is a different style you know it really brings something else to these books uh you know depending on who the inker is um so yeah it's now the ink that interestingly enough the choice of Scott was not mine. The ink, excuse me, the uh, editor said, listen, you're going to work on Spider-Man and we know who we're going to get to work with us. Uh, you got to you gotta give him a call, find out if he's going to do anything. I laughed. I said, what do you mean give him a call? Well, we already called him and he said yes, but he wants to hear if you said. And I had already told Scott at conventions. I said, Scott, we got to get back and do something together. The minute I have a project, if it's Spider-Man, and I said this before I was given Spider-Man. I said, if it's Spider-Man, I want you to... Let's go in and go back over it again. He said, yeah, you kidding me? Let's, let's go. And we have, he is better now than he was before. And I'm very happy to say that. And he's a brilliant artist. Great, great guy. And I know him a million years. 
And again, the distinctive style from Klaus, a departure. And yet, Klaus did Spider-Man Daredevil. Uh, he did Spider-Man. He did Daredevil, the Punisher. Ballsy, ballsy line work in the Punisher. I mean, just big time. And the distinctive style between him and Scott. Scott does the big, strong, ballsy stuff on Spider-Man 2 uh, and throws in the heavy weights. And they claim, and I may have heard this over a couple glasses of wine, it really depends on the image itself, not so much the whole theme of the story, inkwise. In other words, if there's a panel that, that needs that extra oomph on some of the lines, these experienced, brilliant artists, just they know what to do and where to put it. Do you learn stuff about your own drawing whenever you see some of these inks come back? I'm thinking specifically Danny Mickey on Eternals. I remember when that book came out, I was a big fan of yours, and it was like I had never seen your art look like that before. When that comes back, does that does that impress you in some way where you're like, oh, I could I could go more in this direction, or I never thought about quite doing it this way? Um, do you get that kind of, I don't know, visual feedback when you see these different interpretations? Yeah, when I go back and look at the finished product, yes. Uh, the ink uh, imagery comes back, they send it to me, and I look at it, and I don't think I pay as much attention to it as when I see it printed. But I can see where I made a mistake, and I never blame the ink artist. I, I, you, you can't, I see an eye that's a little bit higher than the other eye or a hairline that's wrong. I blame myself for it. However, they make it look better. The... Uh, the, the, choice, the chance to work with a guy like Mickey on the Eternals, which dwarfed both of us. It just, it, <laughs> both of us were intimidated. Remember the conversation I had with him? I said, holy shit, we're working with Neil Gaiman. Uh, it was gigantic. And again, I plastered my drafting table in the room with Jack Kirby stuff. Uh, there are some double spreads that I look at now. I said, I, I don't know if I can do that now. How long did it take me? And my wife would say, I don't know. I didn't see you for a couple of days. Loved every second of it. That's where the story and the characters overshadowed the artwork, as far as I'm concerned. I think Neil is a brilliant, and he's a great guy, and I love talking to him. And every time I say, let's work together, yeah, 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 you know, let's get the wives and the kids together. Right, right, right. He's too busy. But that's where the story dwarfed the art. I, I'd like to believe that people say the opposite. The graphic novel, the hardcover compilation was Neil Gaiman. And John Romita Jr. <laughs> you knew what was important to the sale of that book. John, do you uh, prefer working Marvel method or full script? Uh, you know, we've Marvel been talking method. about your... Yeah. Uh, but it, it, I, as I mentioned with, with Zeb, it's a nice combination working with a, a writer who's willing to allude to, uh, accede to the storytelling. In other words, I'll give you the dialogue, I'll give you... Neil Gaiman actually said that to me. I'm going to give you a script because I didn't know how much you liked doing this. I'm giving you a script. You do whatever the hell you want, and I'll adjust the dialogue according to the artwork. And he did on a few moments, but I called him and said, I'd like to add this, this, and this. He said, go ahead. Don't worry about it. But don't take anything out unless you tell me, which is the, the running. And it's working with all the writers I've worked with subsequently, that if there's anything that I want to change, let them know. Anything you want to throw in additionally, you throw a couple of close-ups up. You want to throw a couple of scenes in. You let me you know, do it. Knock yourself out. That's what's working with Zeb, and it's worked well with Dan Slott. It's worked well with all the writers I've worked with. The greatest vignette in this vein of conversation is Frank Miller on *Man Without Fear* when he told me I had 64 pages slotted for the the graphic novel. And he calls me up and says, "I have an addendum between pages 17 and 18. I'll send it to you in a, in a couple of days." It was a <laughs> It was 88 pages. <laughs> it went from the 64-page book to 150 pages. Because he said, after watching what you did, I see what you can do. I want to do this, this, and this. And that's the great thing about the writers that I work with, is they allow me to have that input, and it affects what they're doing positively, I'd like to believe. And then they say, we'll give you a script, and you play with it as you see fit. So I call it hybrid Marvel method. Uh, that they let me to do my they let me do my storytelling and as long as I keep their editorial and their dialogue in without any drastic changes. Uh, the the scenes that I'm talking about with Zeb, he said this is what I need to, he needs to get from point A to point B in ten pages. Knock yourself out, but this is what I'd like in those scenes. I want him to do this in this scene and then then this guy comes in and does this in this scene and as long as I keep that in in the in the storytelling. 
and I play with it as I see fit. It's a great combination of writer and artist. I love it. You don't have to name names or anything like that, but I do wonder if you were ever were ever hamstrung by a very tight, uh, f- full script. Yeah, but hamstrung insofar as I have to do it my way. This is really tough. You can't expect me to do this unless I do that. And I won't tell you. And it ended up being a great project, but it was very difficult in what the writer was asking for. Not that it wasn't great imagery possible. It was because of getting to that point, there was a couple of things that were asked that were really tough to navigate. You need to tell the story so that it makes sense. And some things were cut too abruptly and I needed to fill gaps. And, and I'd say, I have to fill this up. I need a couple extra pages here, there, and there. And then the editors would try to massage, double spreads had to be, it ended up being a good project, and the writer and I are good friends, but there was some difficult times. And I won't name names. You're right. Yeah, yeah you're super pro. John Romita, man. <laughs> they can name names all the time, but I won't name names. Uh, going back to the Inker uh, conversation just briefly, you did a book for – it was a DC Marvel book, Thor Ryan, that was – it reproduced directly from your pencils. Correct. And this was pretty early on in, in comics doing that. What do you remember about that and that choice? Uh, Being did you terrified. Pencil it Being differently? Being terrified. I had my pants down in full public and everybody was going to point and laugh. I was really nervous. So it was set up. Was, John, it was set up for that? It wasn't a deadline issue? Like it was going to be printed from the pencils they, from, from, the, from the jump? From the get-go, they told me. And that really got me nervous because there was no hiding behind the ink artist. And you had to erase structure lines. You had to make sure it was clear. Uh, loved every minute of it. And then there was, there was also doing the complete uh, dialogue-less book, the storytelling book. And I did that. I forgot which, which character it was. Uh, I can do it, but I'm still nervous about it. Same with Orion. And anytime I've done a penciled book only, uh, now it's more fun because I'm not afraid and I know what I have to do. But it's still... You, you, you're standing around with your pants down and people can laugh at you and it's a little bit scary and you cannot hide behind the ink artist. What are some of the other penciled books? I did a uh, Batman uh, full pencil. Um, I did a couple of Marvel titles full pencil. Uh, I'm doing Schmuggy and Bimbo which is my creation full pencil black and white. There's I, the, the specifics I can't remember exactly but I've done maybe seven or eight of them. And loved every second of it. The the, the uh, Batman thing I did with Frank uh, was uh, all pencil. Loved every second of it. And that character is made for a black and white book, um, Batman, because of the, the shades. Uh, but I I need a Google search or somebody that's smarter than me to come up with the amount I've done. I'd say six, seven, eight of them I've done. Loved every second of it. I think. Kirby was kind of famous for for not really looking at his stuff once it hit print. Uh, do do you hold on to your books? Do you have like a couple of long boxes full of JRJR comics? I feel like at have, this point I you have, at least have two two full long boxes. I have I have a couple of them. I I don't like to keep gigantic amounts, but I do have because I'm sent gigantic amounts, so I've got a good amount. Uh, I I don't like to pay attention to what I've done. I like to pay attention to what I want to do next. Uh, the the books like Man Without Fear. The, uh, the Superman Year One that I work with Frank, Man Without Fear is one of the ones I want to keep. Uh, the Spider-Man stuff, I've got copies of all of them, but not gigantic amounts. I've got gigantic amounts of everybody else's stuff, too. I wonder if we could uh, play the name game a little bit with writers. We did it with inkers, and that was fun. Oh, shit. Here we go. <laughs> I'm going to insult somebody. You, oh, uh, boy. you mentioned Frank Miller a couple of times there. Can, can you tell us about what he brings to a, to a project that's, that's uniquely Frank? He and I came into the business at the same time. I think I'm a year younger than him. No, I joke. He, he laughs at that. He's a year old, uh, younger than me. But we came in at the same time, and his style is so distinctive. When he became a writer and known for his writings, he was of the Marvel method. And when we worked on Man Without Fear, he had already seen what I was doing with the character. And he gave me a, uh, a teleplay typed out. It was supposed to, excuse me, a screenplay typed out. And he said, can you navigate this uh, for a graphic novel? I said, yeah, just give it to me. And then the, 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 the addendum and all that. But he lets me do what I want. However, it's, as I alluded to, is where you give the crux of what they want and allow the dialogue to apply to it. And it's a great combination of writer and artist. So with Frank, 
the, the, the Superman year one was 200 pages. He gave me about 15 pages of plot. And I was able to play with it. He'll give me a paragraph that turns into 10 pages. He'll give me a paragraph that gives you one panel. It, it's, a, it's a great camaraderie. And I'm a big fan of his writing style. And he's a big fan of my storytelling. We just hit it off famously. And uh, the, the, uh, the idea that Clark Kent became a Navy SEAL, Superman became a Navy SEAL, was just us playing around with the fact that he would be great on the ocean, that kind of thing. Uh, goes into the military, etc. It was greeted with a lot of harumphs, but it was a nice progression that the two of us worked out. Uh, and that's the kind of thing working with Frank. He says, let's try this. Holy shit, what a great idea. What do you want me to do? He says, I don't know. You play with it. That's Frank Miller. And he was an artist before he was a writer. So he knows what looks good and what story tells. I would work with him in a second. He and I work famously together, work well together. I loved every second of it. Kind of a, an artist's writer, if you will. And I think that's and true. And Howard Chaikin. Howard Chaikin, same thing with Howard Chaikin and I. We're working on this, this uh, Schmuggy and Bimbo uh, story that, we, that I've started a long, long time ago and haven't been able to finish. I just started the third issue. It's probably 10 years late. Another great, a brilliant artist that became a brilliant writer, too. Uh, that is a great company. John Byrne and I worked on Iron Man the same way. He became a writer for that. Uh, and he gave me upfront credit. He said, John Romita Jr., artist and storyteller, John Byrne, writer, not dialoguer. Uh, another guy that was a great artist before he was a great, great writer. That works because of the Marvel method, so to speak. Yeah, I think I think Miller in a lot of ways is the apex of that Marvel method working with artists. You see it in, in like Bill Sienkiewicz collaborations, Jeff Darrow oh, yeah. collaborations, oh, yeah. where it's like it really allows the artist to be the artist and, and you know, Miller coming in and filling in uh, as necessary, but it, it, it's pretty interesting to see those collaborations. Uh, another writer that you've had some experience with, Mark Miller. Uh, thoughts on Mark Miller's work? Oh, boy. Uh, there's a man that can write a Shakespearean play and then write a ballroom brawl all in the same issue. Uh, he's got such a wide range of brilliance. And the uh, us working on the... Uh, the uh, Wolverine series cemented him uh, wanting me to work on this new character. And uh, he approached me with it and we went out and had too many drinks. And I said, yes, before I even knew what I was doing, but he came up with a premise and it was supposed to be just the father and hit girl. And we played with it. I did some, some character studies, some character sheets. And then he suddenly said, I had a revelation. We need some teenagers in this. And that's where kick-ass came in. It was a great progression of idea, structure, character sheets, some playing with artwork, and then it advanced from there. And he allowed me to have a lot of input. He says, where do you live? I said, I live in, in Long Island, a short, time, short distance from Manhattan. He said, where were you raised? I said, Queens Village, Queens. He says, then use Queens. That's where he's got to live. You know what, exactly what it looks like. He's got a brilliant mind for all types of storytelling. And like I said, he could write a Shakespearean play just as easily as you can write a barroom brawl. He's, he and I are good friends, and I love it. His wife is a doll. She and my wife get along famously. And the, the four of us can talk without anybody interrupting us for two hours straight without anybody taking a breath. It's a great combination. And he's that way as a writer. You give him room, he'll give it, he'll give it to you. And then he lets me play with what I want to do. And I'm hoping out hope that we'll get together and do something again. And that's all I'm going to say. Don't ask any more questions because I know some things I can't say anything. Very exciting, man. Uh, you you mentioned that you know you looked at your your stuff in print, but um, you know you're looking forward, not backward. But I do wonder if, uh, man, I can't imagine the the thousands of pages that that have come from your pencil, and then you get a lot of that original art back. Uh, are there are there some pages that that you're going to hold on to forever that that have yes. some certain relevance to you, and what would those be? I'd like to say the 9-11 issue is mine forever, uh, but sometimes somebody will p pipe up and say, can you take this and give half to charity and keep that half? And There's always a temptation, uh, but the 9-11 issue is so important to me, and there are other covers that I have that I work with my father on and images that I can't get rid of that my son will get. 
that 9-11 issue is tough to, to look at. Uh, the book is tough to look at. I can see myself holding on to it unless I get to uh, a, a, maybe 10 more years from now and I need something, uh, maybe. But there are certain important things that will stick with me, yeah. And some of my father's work with me, those are, those are some of them. Yeah, you know what? Tell us about your 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 dad's inking. We'll play the inker game again, man. Uh, when John Romita's inking John Romita Jr., that was that was some special comics to me. Uh, describe describe the best, uh, that the best artist the best artist that ever inked me, John Romita Sr. Actually, he's just John Romita. I'm John Romita Jr. Uh, he always said he grumbled. I'm not a senior. You're just a junior, and I'm not really a junior. It was a nickname, a derisive nickname by all the other artists at the, the up at the uh, bullpen. Uh, the best artist that ever inked on me, and he was so polished and so good. And uh, the best thing we ever did together was the uh, 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 Captain Marvel, Monica Rambeau. And a quick story: we did. I, I was a Pam Greer fan, the actress. And uh, and I, I said, Dad, I'm just going to make it Pam Greer. He says, Yeah, all right, all right, it's cool. And we used to go to lunch together whenever I was in the office, bringing up pages, and we sat down at a cafe. And this 12-foot-tall Amazonian beautiful woman was serving us as she was uh, doing auditions on Broadway. And stunningly beautiful woman. And my father said, F. Pam Greer, this is the next Captain Marvel right here. And that's who that character was. Uh, big afro and everything. So that conversation between the two of us, uh, without taking photographs of that woman, speaking about reference, I didn't take any photographs of that woman. I never told her that she was Monica Rambo. If she's still alive and she ever tries to sue Marvel, it's my own fault. But uh, that the two of us worked on that book together and we're very proud. Of it. And he really took took it to heart because of that girl. It was great. And he did a beautiful job. Those, those pages shined. Again, brilliant artist first and a great inker and repair job. He fixed everything. He called me up and said, eh, I got to fix this. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> we got some sense of that. I, I, to this day, I remember watching the home, uh, home shopping network or whatever when you and your pops were, uh, were on the set, and they had you know the big white tablet and gave you guys some sharpies that were not, uh, you know, they they just give you drawing supplies and it's like here, draw, <laughs> draw, draw the most amazing Spider-Man and stuff. And uh, I remember, uh, I think it was like a Gwen Stacy that you drew, and and he was like criticizing you on the air about. You have, she's a blonde. You have too many lines in that hair. Like, what are you I doing? I can't believe you remember that. That's a perfect microcosm of working with my father. And he says it with a big smile on his face. Uh, speaking of my father, there is an image that, that we did. We did two posters together. Spider-Man in the rain um, on top of a, 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 a dome that it became a big G. Clay poster. To this day, I still have that original artwork. That is something I will never let go of. Uh, it's I, I insist on it being the best Spider-Man piece I have ever done, and it was that way because of my father. And there's a second one that's actually over there. That's the second one that we did together. The first one is of Spider-Man on that dome, and I will never, ever get rid of that. Perfect example, and that's a perfect combination of the two of us. Just stunning work, and that's how good the man was. My uh, my John Romita Senior, uh, uh, just John Romita. My fault. My John Romita story is, um, you know, I'm doing Hulk Grand Design from Marvel, and I've been asked a bunch of times, how do I get into the Hulk, or you know, what are my early memories? My memory is a Hulk cereal bowl that I had when I was six, and it was with John Romita art on it. And I studied that intensely every morning before school, eating my breakfast. Um, but you know, I still—it's burnt into my head. It's probably the most vivid comics image, you know, in my mind because it's just—it imprinted. You know, that was before I was reading comics. But man, I—I I, I loved the art. He had a great effect on a lot of people, and especially when he became art director, he had a great effect on people. The only thing I—I I would laugh about was. If he would repair anybody's artwork, I could see it. If it was the smallest of heads, I said, Dad, I know it's you to just fix that. Oh, well, you could tell, huh? <laughs> yes, Dad, you fixed it. I can see that. Don't worry about it. You're not hiding from anybody. Uh, I'm getting the heave-ho from the, my wife. Uh, so if we could 
Close this up in another, ten, another five or ten minutes. I think we'll be okay. I, I think we're good to go. Like we we know you're on a big schedule, man. That deadline style. That shit is no joke. John Romita Jr. Thank you so much for uh, for coming by. Thanks for the little uh, secret little glimpses at the script and then at your process and even uh, the bigger glimpse of that really fantastic drawing table that I'm going to buy off of Amazon uh, once we get off of this uh, conversation. That is so old. It's older than me and I got it in college and I don't know if I sneeze too hard, it'll fall apart. <laughs> but I want to tell you guys, thank you much. Great conversations, great questions, great pieces. Uh, anytime, Ed, you just, you got my email. Just, just let me know when you want to do this again. Love every second of it. You can tell I'm not afraid to talk. When's Spider-Man coming out? I, I, this is all doing, everybody knows this already. It's already been released and I'm working on Spider-Man. I didn't give anything away, right? Co okay. Correct. Yeah, yeah. The press release is out. <laughs> the, uh, I, I'm told April. The first issue, and uh, I'm going to be done with the, the, the six, the first six issues before the first one comes out, hopefully. And uh, I look forward to doing more, and I'm having a great time. And uh, I, I, it's better than having a real job, guys. I'm telling you. Before we get out of here, is there any uh, online presence that we can steer the audience to, or uh, just tell them to go to that comic shop and get Amazing Spider-Man? That too, but I, I have two sons that are working on one Instagram and one Facebook presence. And I don't know anything about social media because I, I don't have enough time to count my own fingers, uh, let alone do that. And they are helping me do that. So Instagram and Facebook. Uh, I don't even know if it, uh, if, it, if it works well without me saying anything online. I tell my son and he types it for me. Uh, but just let me know if there's anything you need. And I got a social media presence. Never thought I would ever do it, but... John, steer clear of it for as long as you can because I am trying to because I got too much work to do. Even my wife says that you will not be able. On. You will not be able to claim that you could do two monthly books if you had an Instagram. <laughs> All the more reason why I've hired both of my sons to do it. Exactly right. That's true. Thanks That's so much. True. Thanks so much, John. Guys, Thank you, John. Pleasure talking to you. I look forward to the next time. Take care. Bye, mom. Bye, dad.